Hi everyone and welcome to the very first episode of Peripod. I've been wanting to start a podcast for a while now and I can't think of a better time to start than the present. The very first episode is with myself, Martin Perry, who I hope you get to know a little bit better across the series of pods I have lined up, and CEO of Avanti, Kyle Whitehill. Avanti lead the way in pioneering satellite technology, so if you have any desire for that, check them out. Throughout the interview, talks of videos and photos occur, and to see the full recorded interview which features these, please check out my YouTube channel. Good afternoon, my Avanti colleagues. Welcome to the next edition of At Home With. And, well, I've got to be honest with you. When I first heard who this was going to be, I was, like, really excited. Because normally when Mark, um, Mark at Athletes Media Group runs me through the next sessions of guests, and he said to me, and I'm really pleased, Cal, managed to secure Matthew Perry, right? And I thought, oh, my God, that's amazing. Oh, we've got Chandler Bing coming on. I'm going to find out what Jennifer Aniston was really like for 10 years. And then I thought, we know Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, and like, this is just amazing. And then we did the pre-call and I said, who the hell are you? <laughs> so who the hell are you? I am Martin Perry. I thought I left that joke behind in high school. It's haunted me for my entire life. <laughs> Hi everyone. It's a real pleasure to We'll get to the whole haunted at high school thing, won't we, at some point because um so the great news is that Martin is from Paisley, where I come from as well. I was born in Paisley in nineteen sixty-two and Martin was born in nineteen ninety-four. So he's a young guy, um twenty-six years old, born and brought up in Paisley. Now listen, we've got a ton of stuff to talk about. But I know that the single most important thing we can do for people is actually to show them what the hell you do. So we're going to show a video of Martin doing what he's really good at. Okay, let's go, Nick. First video, please. So Martin, it would be a good description to say that you are in fact a world-class table tennis player. I do all right. I hold my own. Yeah, it's um, it's given yeah, me a lot of a lot of prospects. And what we saw there, because I, I want to make sure that we get this right. So let's just explain to everyone kind of how the um, what's the, the difference between able-bodied table tennis and the table tennis that you play and how the kind of classifications work, please. Well, the main difference tends to be um, the side, like me, tend to have a little bit less limbs than uh, the able-bodied side, <laughs> which I'm sure you worked out. But yeah, um, it's a little bit different for the fact that we have 11 different classifications, uh, one being the most severe physical disability, uh, with a 10 being the most uh, able, and a class 11 is a learning difficulty with an IQ under 75. Um, so I fall bang smack in the middle. Um, class one to five are wheelchair users, and the higher the number, the more trunk control and more functional ability they will have. Uh, a class six to a 10 starts off the most severe and working way up to a 10 would be, you know, someone who has a very minimal impairment that doesn't overly affect their table tennis. Uh, whereas me, I am a class six, so I'm the lowest in the para classification for table tennis, 
which uh, means that I have either all four limbs seriously affected or two limbs on one half or side of the body that are severely affected. So for me, I was born with my uh, right hand missing. So this is the side that I play with. Um, I was born with my left forearm missing. It stops at my elbow. And I also have a prosthetic leg on my left side that I have to use to walk, run, jump, play table tennis and do everything else in between. So in terms of looking at it physically, it's quite a it's quite an intense disability, but I think that I've been quite privileged that it's all I've known for my entire life. And I think that that actually gives me an advantage on the table because a lot of the guys that I play acquire their disability. So it means that I've got a slight advantage that I know exactly what I'm working with, whereas they're still getting to grips um, about their disability and what their new life might mean for them. Gosh, yeah, I can imagine. So let's um, let's go back because I want to just get this right because I talk a lot about coming from Paisley because I've perfected this whole boy done good routine, you know, dragged up in Paisley. So I need some help. I need your help to just reinforce what's it like growing up in Paisley. On one side of it, it's great, but the reality of that is it can be tough in Paisley. Um, you know, the people the people are can be can be incredibly nice, but also like anywhere in the world it's it, it can be a tough place to live. Um, but I found that, that that sort of area that I grew up in just made me stronger and more confident as a person. You know, it wasn't always the nicest of things that we would have or, or, or stuff like that growing up or necessarily in the nicest of areas, but the fact that, you know, it's it's a place where you always get to call home. You know, and I think that's a reason that, you know, as the saying goes, home is where the heart is, is because that's that's the place that shapes you as a person and it's the place that makes you who you're going to go on and become. So, you know, I think I owe a lot to Paisley. Mm. So you were born in Paisley, I said, 94. Mum, Avril, Dad, Paul, normal parents? About as normal as it gets. Um, you know, we were, we were quite a divided family uh, in the terms of that my dad was a Celtic fan and my mum was a Rangers fan. So... Um, if you can imagine four times a year, it was just carnage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, um, it's a kind of Rangers town, Paisley, isn't it? So your dad's a kind of odd one out in yeah. that family situation. Yeah. And what about then you've got brothers, so three brothers as well? Yeah, I've got three older brothers, um, Paul, Thomas and Jamie. So I'm, I'm the youngest one, I'm the baby, um, which they constantly like to remind me of. You know, as uh, as siblings do, and and we still to this day, you know, um, just have a laugh and a joke with each other. But they've definitely shaped the way that I've I've turned out massively, and um, you know, they'll never let me forget that I'm the baby. But now that I like to remind them that I'm the biggest and I'm the strongest now, so it's uh, it makes for a lot more interesting scenarios. Let's say. <laughs> I can imagine because what actually, as you said so rightly, was that you were born with your disability, so. Again, let's just understand what the kind of terms for what, what you were born with are. Mm, so the medical diagnosis for someone like myself is congenital limb loss and deformity. Um, so obviously that just means that my limbs didn't form correctly in the womb, um, which obviously results to the limb loss. And in terms of the deformity, uh, the one complete limb that I do have, not, not many folk know this actually, the one complete limb that I do have um, I actually only have four toes, so I've got my full right leg, um, but I don't have I don't have a big toe, so that massively affects my balance. Um, but not a lot of folk know that because they just see this big strong right leg and assume that it's completely normal. 
whereas obviously the lack of hands and lack of the other leg is, is very visual and it strikes you uh, quite quite apparently in the face. Gosh, yeah. So, bigger brothers and, um, you know, Paisley's a rough and tumble place, so you're born with the disability and I'm guessing here, and it is a guess, knowing Paisley parents and Paisley brothers, that they didn't treat you particularly with a sort of like, you know, I don't mean caring, but they didn't really want you to be wallowing, right? I'm assuming that they kind of dragged you out and got you involved in the thing. Absolutely. I mean, there was, there's was there been no period in my life where I've been wrapped up in cotton wool and protected from the big bad world that's out there. You know, um, my brothers and my parents and, and family friends just made sure that that wasn't the case. You know, I was, I was treated like any other child. Um, and as you said, Paisley's a rough and tumble place. And, and as a lot of kids in that area do, you get into trouble and scuffles and, and, and everything far and few between. And, and yeah, it just makes obviously for such a, I think for me, such a humbling upbringing because it could have been shaped completely differently had I had different parents or different brothers that, you know, could have in some way, you know, as I said, wrapped me up and protected me and put me in this bubble where, you know, nothing was gonna, nothing was ever gonna get to me. Whereas actually I was exposed to the real world from a very early age. And that real world, of course, meant the fact that I have a very um, obvious disability, but that wasn't gonna be allowed to, to hinder me, it was just going to be who I am. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, um, I, when I first saw you and thought about you, thought, I wonder if it was tougher being brought up in Paisley called Kyle or being you, because I was mercilessly bullied <laughs> about the name. And I would have dreamt of being called Martin, right? I'd be like, I would have dreamt of that and made all my, my from sort of baby up to 21 years old, please call me Martin. Yeah. <laughs> So what, you're playing football and you're playing rugby and you, I mean, you're playing all the normal sports? Yeah, I, you know, I, I owe a lot of that, as I said, to my brothers. Um, I hope they never hear this interview, by the way, because I never compliment them to their face, um, which which you never do to your siblings, you know, you always just rib on each other. Uh, but yeah, so they, um, they, they included me in everything that they did. And as you said, that was playing football, whether it be in school or on the street or down the park would play football. Um, I then went on to high school and played rugby for the school team and, and played basketball. And, and you know, I ended up attending a few para-athletics track meets and things like that, just because I just love sport. You know, I love being active. And um, it's definitely, it's one thing that I've always felt definitely hasn't been hindered by having no hands and one leg. I've always been able to run around and have fun and kick a ball and throw a ball and and do things like that, you know, so sport's definitely been a way for me just to have fun. And um, I think that's why I was attracted to so many different sports before finally sort of being encapsulated by table tennis, just because I loved it so much and it was so fun. Yeah, I bet. And so look, one thing that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to try and explore with you was, we met an amazing guy a couple of weeks ago called Duncan Slater, also Scottish, From he's from the Highlands and he had his legs blown off in um, Afghanistan because he was uh, he was in the RAF regiment. So of course he had the opposite as you mentioned at the start. He was twenty odd years old, catastrophic um, injuries, loss of limbs. Now getting used to that, you said you were you actually were were more privileged to start from the position of this is who I am. So tell me, you know, when when you think about that, what does that actually mean to you then? 
it mean it means so much you know it definitely is the way the way i view it at least that it is an absolute privilege to be born with no hands and one leg because i can you know i cannot imagine as i'm sure you can't either you can't imagine what that must be like to go through to be put in a situation where you've lost you know not just your limbs but undoubtedly your way of life and you know everything in your life from that moment on would change um so i find i find it so lucky for me to to be able to say that this is all i've ever known and it's definitely made things you know 100 percent easier just because the fact that i've only ever had to learn once you know i've not had to grow up as a as a regular able-bodied kid and go through something traumatic you know an injury an accident or something like that that I've resulted in losing three limbs. You know, I've always I've always been like this. It's all I've ever known. So for me, that's just so incredibly lucky and fortunate. And do you think that mentality is something that you were lucky to to be born with, or do you think that's something that you grew to understand and accept? This is who I am, and therefore I'm going to take a positive mental attitude. I think I think it's a bit of both. Um, one of my earliest memories, actually, that I have was I didn't have a prosthetic leg at the time. Um, and I, I remember I crawled through, and that, that was how I transported myself around the house. We used to live in a high flat. So we'd have, you know, we were, I can't remember how many floors up of like a 36 story building. And um, I used to, I would crawl through our, our flat on my hands and knees as a kid. And uh, I remember crawling through to my mum and being like, mum, when, when are my hands gonna grow? Um, and she, well, that, that was the thing. She was just so taken aback. You know, she knew this day was coming. Of course, one day I was going to ask, um, but she was so taken aback, and she got really emotional and really upset. And and um, I think if I'd sort of sat there any longer, she may have started crying. But I just looked. I was like, when are my hands going to grow? And um, eventually, she sort of mustered up the courage to tell me that they weren't. And I don't know why or you know, what what gave me this sort of attitude, but I just I just remember going, Okay. And that was it. I just went I just went back to my bedroom and played with my brothers. That was it. There was no there was no questions. There was no feeling sorry for myself. I just remember asking why. I got the answer. I accepted it. And um I think as you said, maybe that's something that I was born with, but I also think that it was something that I was inadvertently shaped into being as well and I think that just comes from my family and the way that they treated me you know my brothers wouldn't wouldn't have it any other way um so I think by the time that I, it came to me to ask these questions and to try and have a bit more understanding I reckon I was already in that headspace where actually you know what I don't really care I just wanted to know why um or if they would you know, I often get asked, what would you do if you woke up tomorrow and you had hands and a leg? And I'd be like, <laughs> I'd probably scream. You know, I'd get such a, I'd get such a fright. I wouldn't know what to do with them. Um, so, yeah, so it's for me, I just feel so, so lucky. Oh, that's amazing. And tell me about school then. It could be a cruel place. It, it was a horribly cruel place for me because of my name at times and many stories about how that affected me. But... The school experience for you then was how how was that for you? Um, it, it had its ups and downs, you know. Like most people, or or like a lot of people, I've I've of course been bullied, you know, from time to time. It was something that I had to deal with in school. Was was um, people trying to bully me and make fun of me the way I, that I would walk or do things or 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 you know anything as I'm sure you can imagine. There's a whole host of um, varieties that kids could choose from, but. Again, it was something that I never, I never really took personally because it's something that we, 
we do without noticing as as we look at what's different. You know, we we everyone gets drawn to something that doesn't look quite right or sound quite right or feel quite right, and we all you know we all fixate on that. The only thing is, as a child, you will express that in whatever form you think is necessary because you don't have that conscious factor as a, a young child growing up. You know that this is right and wrong. Um, so I would never. I would never really take it to heart when I was bullied or, or, or things like that, you know, and, and as I got older, I'd, 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 I'd big brothers anyway that would just probably beat them up. So, so it became, it became a little bit easier the older I got because I'd just be like, it was that one. And they'd be like, all oh, right, okay. And, um, so yeah, so it, it definitely got easier, but when I got older, um, and I grew into this six foot two, quite broad stature uh, young man, you know, it, it definitely stopped pretty quickly because um, regardless if there's a fist on the end of your arm, it's going to hurt, <laughs> you know, if someone swings at you. Not that I'm condoning violence, of course, of course. But um, but yeah, there was, of course, moments when I was bullied, but I actually I actually really enjoyed school. You know, um, I, I enjoyed socialising and obviously virtually as we're doing just now, but I, I enjoy chatting to folk and, and things like that. So I loved my time at school and it was also another outlet where I could do as much sport as I wanted to. You know, I picked PE as a subject. We got the option in the later years at school when we had free periods and rather than go and study, I would take leisure PE. So we'd go and do even more physical activity and, and that was something that I did growing up. So yeah, I actually, as much as there was, you know, bad times and tough times where I was where I was bullied and such, I actually really enjoyed school. And uh, um, there was a time in my life where I looked at possibly becoming a teacher, you know. So it's um, it's definitely a, a place that I have more fond memories of than than negative. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's great to hear. I think we all have that experience. Um, the horrific moment where the teacher is reading the register and gets to my name and says, Kylie Whitehill. And Kylie Minogue had just got famous and that was, uh, I was a dead man. <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine, especially in Paisley, you had no chance. No chance at all. Listen, that's brilliant. Um, okay, so 2011, everything changes. You've been playing all these different sports. You're now 17 years old, I guess, at that point. Yeah. And tell us about the table tennis beginning. How did that play out? Um, would you believe me if I told you that table tennis began for me playing rugby? <laughs> okay. Explain. So I was, as I said, very active within my school and the, the head of the PE department said, how would you like two days off? You can run around with your mates in the mud playing rugby for the school. It's a no-brainer, absolutely. So I signed up to play in the, the local sevens competition representing the school where we'd play against other schools in that in that um, constituency and we ended up we went on a good run uh, we, we won the competition and there was a picture of us as a as a group in the local paper the sort of following day or, or two days time whatever it may be and obviously this is able-bodied uh, able-bodied rugby able-bodied school and I was the only disabled kid there and, and there's a picture of me head just covered in mud uh, but I've got this rugby ball under my arm and one of my teammates has got the trophy and it's just, just kids celebrating, having fun and I was fortunate enough that someone from Scottish Disability Sport uh, they seen that article because they happened to live in Paisley so if, if that person hadn't lived in Paisley I may never have found table tennis um, so they seen that article got in contact with the school and was like you have uh, 
you know, a, a very disabled young man playing able-bodied sport and competing, how do we not know who he is? Um, so they they got in contact with my parents after that and uh, they, they offered me the opportunity to go to a Scottish Disability Sports Summer Camp where I would get to try loads of different sports. I'd mix with loads of you know, other different um, para-athletes and disabled people. And so, of course, instinctively, I said no because I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be pigeonholed into this you know, I was never, I was never the disabled guy, or I was never, you know, disabled Martin, or, or anything like that. So I didn't want to go to this disabled camp, where you know everyone was disabled, and I just, I just something that just didn't, didn't appeal to me whatsoever. But as I'm sure many of you are aware, if your mum says you're doing something, you end up doing it. So of course she signed me up straight away. She was like, brilliant. I get a long weekend to myself because all my older brothers had moved up and. You know they'd grown up and moved out and things like that so she was like brilliant weekend to myself you're going um so of course i went i went to this camp and there was loads of different sports on offer and on the final day it was in inverclyde um so it was the national center for sport in scotland at the time and um, the building's sadly been been pulled down now um but it was that's where it was and there was loads of sports on offer uh you know and and it was great fun and um i actually to this day, still regret not just like jumping at that opportunity straight away because I had to be almost dragged and you know thrown into it because I was I was so reluctant. And uh, on the final day of the camp, there just so happened to be table tennis, and there was folk from Drumchapel Table Tennis Club who were there and had never really coached para para sport at all, um, which actually I think helped because you know as if you think Paisley's rough, it's. Um, it's a, it's a cakewalk compared to some of the areas of drum chapel. So these these guys would come in having no sort of idea what disability meant. Everyone was just the same and you would just get on with it. And it was that sort of tough and hard attitude that they were like, right, we'll just, just play and find a way to do it. And um, the way we found to do it was, uh, it was like a glorified tea towel that we wrapped around my forearm and like fastened it on with big pieces of Velcro wrap. Um, just to keep the bat attached to to one arm because trying to hold it between my two arms like this wasn't very successful. Uh, so I, I played from there and I had fun, and then this this big guy comes up to me and he's you know he's a really broad guy and he's got a big booming voice and he gets right in my face and he's like, "You having fun?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm having fun. I'm having fun. Yeah, yeah." yeah. He goes right, you're coming to my club, and I was like, "Oh, all right, okay, okay, that's fine." So this guy just told me that I was gonna go to his club to play table tennis. And that was my coach Terry, and that that was it. It just went from there. It snowballed, and me and Terry have been so close ever since. And you know, he's he's definitely changed my life because he told me I was going to play table tennis. <laughs> Did he ever tell you what he saw in you when he saw you starting to play? Um, he just says that on that day he noticed that I had I had the basic coordination. You know, a lot of kids that play table tennis initially uh, they struggle. You know, cause it's a very small bat and ball compared to most other sports. So a lot of kids struggle. Whereas he said that I had, you know, I had the coordination. But most importantly, I was I was having fun. You know, I was enjoying playing it, and um, and that was something that he thought I could really help sort of share, similar to what I'm doing today, share my message and my story with the kids at his club, is to say that you know nothing, nothing is impossible, and you can really do whatever you want to do. So that was another obviously drawing factor for he really wanted me at his club to try and help inspire the other ones 
Um, and it's turned out that I've gone on to represent not only Scotland but Great Britain and, and, and achieve some wonderful things. So it's um it's definitely Drum Chapel's got a fond place in my heart, that's for sure. Not many people say that, Martin. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. So it does go quickly because by 2013, uh, GB of Great Britain have invited you into the partnering programme. Yeah, so I was, um, I remember, so if we go one year back, I watched I watched these absolute gods in my eyes at the time win two medals at London 2012 because I got tickets to the team event. You know, they won more in singles, but I, I was there for the team event. So I seen these two medals get get won by Team GB and I was like wow I was completely in awe and I, from that moment I was like right okay I know I'd only been playing just over a year but I was like I want to be like these guys I want to go and dedicate everything I've got to table tennis so I did that I went away and, and I worked on it you know almost every day with with my coach Terry and then um, the guys at Drum Chapel and I then you know I was then fortunate enough to eventually be asked to represent Great Britain not as a performance athlete but as a young sort of um developmental pathway athlete to sort of see see how things would go and um I you know I went and I played absolutely dreadful I didn't even win a match the first competition that I went to for for representing Great Britain and um it just it, it made me so much more hungry um because it wasn't long after that that a few of my Scottish teammates got invited back down to the national center in Sheffield and I didn't I didn't actually get an invite and this had came after the, the competition and I was I was so worried. I was like, Well why why haven't I had an invite? So I got Terry to phone the coach um down in Sheffield and it was, you know, he was like, Oh, has there been a mistake? And I was like, No, no mistake, we just we just don't you know, it's um Martin's just not on the list. And um he was like, Oh look, you know, he's really upset. Cause I I thought it was my age to begin with, because I'd not long turned eighteen. Um, so I thought it was maybe like an under 18s thing and it wasn't, I just wasn't, I didn't make the cut and uh, so I was so distraught and, and upset because I'd, I had decided that this was what I was going to do, I was going to go play table tennis and I was going to make a career out of it and they were like nah you're, you're not really getting invited back um, so Terry, I don't know how he did it but he managed to sweet talk them into um, allowing me to actually attend the next camp and I think that was just because literally every other member of the Scottish team was going to be there um, so he managed to sweet talk me into it uh, and, and, and I went down and I think I was just so hungry and, and desperate to succeed that I was one of only a, a few to actually be selected for the following and subsequent camps and um, it's just you know it's, it's been that that hunger and that initial rejection that's that's actually driven me to to where I am today because you know if I'd been if I'd been just sort of allowed to walk straight through the ranks it might have been a different story and I might not have been as, as hungry and as had much desire to succeed as I've got just now so it's um it's not been plain sailing that's for sure really is well, let's go back to 2012 so you mentioned the Olympics and I think you had an amazing time when you went to watch the Olympics but I'd love you to share your <laughs> I went to watch the Olympics story with my colleagues please <sighs> Brilliant, brilliant. I hope I don't get done for, for some sort of fraud now retelling this story. Um, so me and my friend uh, Connor, Connor Golden, he, he his dad had, you know, for anyone that, that went to London or those that didn't, it was a ballot system, you know, so you put your name in the hat and if you got a ticket, brilliant. So Connor's dad had done that and had won two tickets 
to uh, to London 2012, and it was a team medal matches. So obviously, when these tickets were when he won those tickets, he didn't know that it was going to be GB representing that day. But uh, anyway, we we got the the sleeper train down from Glasgow to London, and uh, so we get all the way up to the XL, and we find our seats. You know, we've travelled through London, everything else, and we find our seats. And they were okay, you know, I couldn't complain, I hadn't paid anything for the tickets, so I wasn't going to complain, but Connor sort of nudges me, he's like, bit crap, aren't they, can't really see much. And I was like, oh, I don't mind having a great time. And we overheard, um, someone had just been brought in in front of us, uh, a wheelchair user, and, you know, the wheelchair users got to sit basically just outside the field of play, so they could pretty much park up wherever they wanted. And... Um, we overheard one of the stewards saying, oh, Team GB is going to be on tables three and four. And we were at the complete opposite side of tables three and four. And uh, I just, I don't know what compelled me, but I just, I was like, oh, let's just go over there. Let's just see if we can get in over there. And Connor was like, right, okay. But obviously your ticket has your seat number and everything on it. And um, the good thing about having no hands and one leg and you attend the Paralympic Games, even as a spectator, as you can be easily misinterpreted for an athlete. Now, if you're an athlete at the games, you get to sit wherever you want. So we and Connor leave our arranged seating area and we walk around and sure enough, in front of tables three and four, there's security. And the security was because those sections had been allocated for friends and family of the athletes that were playing that day. So you could only get in if your friends, family had accreditation or we're an athlete. So Connor's like, we're not, we're not gonna get in, we're not gonna get in. And I was like, just just walk up as if you, you know, it's fine, we're meant to be here. And he's like, right, okay. And um, so we walk up and the woman that was there without even batting an eyelid, just like removes the barrier and was like, on you go, sit wherever you want. So we get to the top of the stairs and um, so we start almost celebrating. We're like, oh, I can't believe we got away with that. And we turn around and there's a steward standing right behind us. And we were like, oh no. And um, so because we were too busy, like we, we just froze at that moment. And the guy eventually just goes, geez, a hand finding your seat. And Connor just instinctively was like, oh, we're just taking in the view. And we quickly just like scurried to the first empty seat we could find. And as it turns out, we sat behind um, my, my now teammates, we sat behind like their family. So it was like, sisters and brothers and mums, dads, aunties, uncles and, and like sponsors and stuff for the team and we were sat there right behind them in the thick of the action and it's, uh, it's, it's brilliant, you know, as I said, Team GB won two bronze medals that day but we got so caught up in the emotion that um, Connor nudges me and he's like, next time the camera comes on us because we're all celebrating, he goes, take off your leg. So I was like, right, okay, I, don't, I just went with it. I take off my leg, pass it to Connor, and he starts like holding it above his head like a trophy. So when the camera pans from the tables at the action, it's all happening, turns round, you just see my shoe just like bobbing along above some heads, and I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. So that, that was awesome. So yeah, we managed to sneak into an area that we definitely weren't allowed to. Um, so I hope that no one ever listens to this that organised London 2012 because they might get into some trouble. <laughs> oh, this will haunt you. Trust me, this will haunt you. You'll wake up sometime and you'll, be in a, you'll have had a dream. And the dream will be that somebody's capturing you and they're taking something away from you. And when you go and win an Olympic medal one day, that dream will be, they'll go, he can't have a medal. 2012. <laughs> 
That's I'll just... what happens to the people. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, they'll have to me with my degree from Strathclyde University, and I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, even though it's 1984, they're going to take my degree from me because I was <laughs> an imposter. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, that's awesome. So, look, that's 2012, 2013, things start to go. But 2015 was a very important year for you, right? There's a couple of reasons it was very important. There's the first one, which I'd just like to share a... Uh, photograph of, because this is a very, very meaningful photograph in your life. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to have to explain this one, because this is going to be really important, right? So everybody out there listening, this is a team, a soccer team called Glasgow Celtic. In Glasgow, there are two soccer teams. There is this team, Glasgow Celtic, and there is another team called Glasgow Rangers. And it's absolutely, sadly, divided by religion. So if you're a Catholic in Scotland, of which there's about a million, you support Celtic. And if you're a Protestant in Scotland, you support Rangers, four million people. Now, as Martin said to you right at the start, his family's a bit divided, which is very unusual in Scotland, particularly around um, Paisley. Everybody supports Rangers. And as he said, his mum's a Rangers fan, but his dad's a Celtic fan. Now, if you look very closely there, you'll see right in the middle, the guy who's got the, the, um, the big plate in front of him, the Celtic plate, the trophy, is a guy called Scott Brown. And Scott Brown's been a long-term successful um, Celtic player. And then right next to him is who, Martin? <laughs> that would be myself. Yes, that would be myself. That would be <laughs> Could you please explain to me how a Rangers fan ends up in that picture? Um, how a Rangers fan ends up in that picture? Well, I was in, in 2015, as you said, it was definitely a memorable year for me. It was a year where I was approached by the Celtic Football Club Foundation and they are a charity that work in and around the Glasgow area and do a lot of incredible work. Um, and I I just happened to, to meet the, the CEO, Tony, who we, we just hit it off and he said, you know, look, I, I love your story and I love your determination. Is there any way that we can support you on that journey? Um, so he thought his best way to support me on that journey would be to obviously torture myself and my family and put me in a Celtic kit and put me bang centre next to Scott Brown. <laughs> but no, um, they they were actually very generous towards me and um, and they did a lot of work when I was there and, and still continue to. But what they what they did was they financially supported me um, to to enable me to 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 leave university and to go and train and live full-time in Sheffield at the National Centre um, under the sort of tutorage of the GB coaching staff at the time. Um, and that allowed me, their, their funding and support allowed me to live uh, and train full-time as an athlete before I was actually on funding from, from the Paralympic team. You know, so that made a massive impact in my life because without that, you know, I might not be here today because I, I don't think I would have been able to fund that journey any other way. Um, so, yeah, but it was quite an interesting conversation on, on pretty much day one when um, when stuff was about to get signed because um, they, they sort of sat me down and, and they were like, you know, look, we know they, they did. 
believe it or not, they didn't mention the the, the other team as the, as they would say. Um, but they said we know we know who you support. Um, that's of course not an issue for us. It would never be. But as you said, going back to Paisley, it's a very divided town. You know, so they were like, "Is this going to end up an issue for you back at home?" And I said, "Absolutely not. Everyone couldn't be more supportive of the fact of the opportunity that you're going to provide me." I goes, and also, I'm not really signing for Celtic. I'm signing for the charity. <laughs> so that kind of broke the ice. The fact that I was able to do some charity work alongside it. Um, but no, I can honestly say, and it doesn't even pain me at all. As a, as a as a Rangers fan. And as a predominantly Rangers family, Celtic and uh, the Charitable Foundation treated me so well and they do such incredible work in and around, around the community. Um, but of course, an ideal one would be if I could do the same for, for Rangers. Because um, very, very few people um, tend, you know, get the privilege, very few athletes get the privilege to go from Rangers and Celtic. And um, it would definitely be an awesome story that I could tell if I managed to get signed on for both. So hopefully one day I could I could work for the Rangers charity as well. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, look, fingers crossed. There's a couple of comments I'd like to make. The first one is, as I've been staring at this photo now for like a minute or something like that, I have to say, as a lifelong Rangers fan, it saddens me enormously to see you sat there in a Celtic strip. But let's leave it there and move on from that. So like, let's get rid of that photo and move it. Never ever is seen it ever. <laughs> um, you know, and I think the point I took from your story, isn't it, that what's important for you was that it was an absolute catalyst to be able to now go on. So you moved from Paisley, you moved to Sheffield, of course, where the National Training Centre is, which is awesome. I mean, you're still young at this point, right? This is five years ago, so you're like, what, 21 at 20, this I was 20 when I moved. Yeah. yeah, so you're a young guy. You've only been playing table tennis for a few years. But the good news is, at this moment, your career kind of explodes. You start winning medals, you start doing well at championships, European world level, so... Was that how it felt that it exploded? Um, I, I guess so. You know, I think for me, the th for for me is is the thing that I've, I'm actually very privileged that I'm part of a very strong team, and um, the athletes around me, um, are, are incredibly good. And and my, the, the athletes that are in my classification, and um, there's two other males, so we play team event together, and. I'm be between the three of us. I'm the lowest ranked in the world. Um, they're like both of them are top ten, and I'm just just shy outside. Um, so I've always been like the black sheep, as it were. You know. So when you say things exploded, it's still they definitely have because you know to my name, I've got all these great accolades that we've won as a team. But it's always been a fighting process for me. You know, because I'm, I obviously no one wants to be the guy in last place. You know. So the the way that I look at it is. They explode, you know. Things did explode. You know, I went on to win some some great medals for 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 my country, but I couldn't have done that without my team. And it's just the way that we feed each off each other really well, as you know, as as we support each other as much as possible, and we have a really really competitive attitude, especially in training. You know, because very rarely will we play against each other in a competition, but in training we have such a competitive attitude because nobody wants to lose. You know, so they're always 
dragging me up and, and pulling me along because it's that it's that grit and determination to because nobody wants to be as I said that you know the the guy in last place you know and especially when we've got such a small team that can become very very um, apparent so you know in terms of that explosion from from you know going living living in Paisley with my mum to go and living down in Sheffield on my own um, you know thanks to the Celtic Foundation then. It then sort of then everything kicked off because I was like right at that point I wasn't just the worst class six I was probably like the worst player in the hall you know um so that that motivated me to no end you know the fact that right I don't want to be not just the worst guy in my team the little class six bubble I don't want to be the worst guy in the hall you know that would be that would be <laughs> so terrifying for me and you know and for a long time I was um but now I can say that we're surrounded by so many different athletes um, from all different classifications and we just all drag each other on and upwards because it's that attitude of we're just going to improve each other because if we do that, then as you said, it's that explosion. Everyone gets to blow up and everyone gets to go on and win great medals because we've got such a great environment around us. So the thing that intrigued me was that um, so when you're world ranked to any sport, I mean, honestly, the number, frankly, doesn't matter. I mean, I can remember at one time when I don't think Andy Murray had won a, a major championship, right? I, I think he probably won a few tournaments, but not won majors, the Grand Slams. And he was ranked like three in the world. And you go, are you mad? He comes from Scotland and he's ranked three in the world at a sport. I don't care if he never wins anything, right? To be able to achieve a world ranking anything is amazing. But the reality of it is, people like you who have a huge burning desire and competitive streak isn't good enough to be outside the top 10. So did you have a mentality which was, I think, can be a serious player within the world rankings? Um, well, I, I definitely do have that mentality, but it was more you know, a, a matter of the fact that I looked... I looked around me and when I looked at, you know, one of the best guys in the world, Peter Rosenmeier, he, he is the exact same as me. Like our disabilities pretty much mirror each other and for para sport, especially in our class, you know, most, most people have they still have four limbs or there or thereabouts, but they're not as severely affected as myself or Peter. Um so I I look at him and see this, you know, this incredible athlete. And, I, and it was then that I obviously realised, well, actually, there's no excuse to why I can't, you know, get to that level. And then if you look at the sort of generation before this, there was a guy, a German guy called Rainer Schmidt, who had even less than me. You know, he had even less of his arms and one leg. Um, and he, again, was one of the best. So it's definitely something that I've noticed that, you know, there is there is definitely scope for someone like me to, you know, in, in terms of physically have as little as me that can go on and be the best in the world. And that's something that definitely drives me, you know. So my highest my highest world ranking so far has been 14, you know, and that, and that absolutely eats away at me. Of course, I want that to be higher, but it's understanding the process. That's not, okay, that's not going to change overnight. And the way that our ranking system works is you're not going to make a massive jump you know, um, just due to the points difference. So for me, it's obviously, can I go, can I can I get back into the sort of top 14, top 12, top 10, and then from there, you know, just slowly start edging, edging towards being one of the best in the world because, you know, ultimately that's, that's why I'm playing sport. One, because I love it. 
but two because I've got this drive to be not just as good as I can be but to hopefully one day go on and become one of the best in the world and and it's that's a hard one to explain because it's just something that you need to have you know I need to have the, the competitive edge inside me you know it's it's something that every time I go I go to the in-laws and um, me and my wife Siobhan like if someone will talk about oh should we play a game and they all just look at me and they're like are you going to have fun today or are you going to try and win and I'm like mm. I'm probably I'm probably gonna try and win, and then the kids get involved, like nieces and nephews, and they're like, "Are you gonna have fun? Or are you gonna try and win?" And I'm like, eh. you know, so it's it's a difficult one for me. I've always got to be competitive and 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 try and do the best that I can and everything. And um, sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, but that's why you know we got to learn from our mistakes and and keep going. My mum brought me up as win at all costs. There's no second. Right, that's how I was born. Totally agree. Yeah. So we've got a video now, actually, because you referenced the world champion, and I thought it was really interesting. We've got a little video now of you actually playing against him in a competitive match, right? And, I mean, it's really intense. So let's just watch this quick video, and people will get a sense of quite how intense the competition is. So it's it's amazingly intense, right? It's fast. Table tennis a fast four, and... And I like your inspiration. Your inspiration is that you've got a kind of role model or a benchmark, haven't you, of someone who's done it, who's in a similar situation to you. My question for you was, though, um, the world champion's a guy called Fan Zendong, right? So the able-bodied world champion is Fan Zendong. If one of you guys, like, if world championship, world champion, the world champion were to play each other, would it be carnage or do you think they would have a game? Uh, in terms of the able body was to play the para world champion yeah <laughs> I hate to say it but it'd be absolute carnage you'd be lucky to get a point yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I, pl- I used to play squash in Scotland and got quite highly ranked and the number one lady in the world was a girl, a girl called Susan McAvoy she was a New Zealander and she came to Scotland for a tournament and I played her for fun and it was horrible because like that, it was competitive, but I never won a point offer because like a bit of a distance in anything is is quite a big gap in yeah. class sport. Isn't you would yeah, definitely. Don't you would get more of a closer competition with the higher classifications, obviously, because they're more you know in in terms of being physically able, and um, they're more able bodied. Because um, I think the the top male athlete in para, um, he won the Polish national championships able bodied. Um, and it's the same for the female. Um, she's she's incredibly good. She's represented Poland um, at the Paralympics as well as the Olympic Games. You know, so on the top level of para athletes, they can definitely compete and mix with some of the top um, able-bodied athletes. But if, I think if anyone was to come up against Fan Zendong, you know, you may you may as well just sit down. <laughs> Why not? So it's one last thing about it before we move on to something else. So. It should be the Olympics coming up, right? It should be going to Tokyo and, you know, we've met other athletes who are on their way there and, I mean, it's such a blow, isn't it? Did that knock your motivation or, you know, have you got some other target in mind now? A bit of a mixed bag for me um, because, so due to, you know, the current situation that we're in, there was a few opportunities missed um, because tournaments were, you know, of course, rightfully cancelled. So there was a few opportunities missed. That resulted in me... Um, not qual not qualifying. You know, I didn't I didn't and haven't qualified for Tokyo twenty twenty. Um, 
However, there was to be uh, a world qualification tournament in in Slovenia in May a few weeks ago, and it was basically a very restrictive tournament in terms of it was to be one athlete per country per class, um, and I was told you know that if if certain circumstances go my way in terms of if my two other team uh, partners if they qualify then obviously that spot will go to me um, and and things like that so it, it pretty much it worked out as if it was going to be a fairy tale the world qualification tournament the final was to be on my 25th birthday a couple of weeks ago and I had I had this all right I'm gonna obviously go and work 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 do whatever I can and I'm gonna give myself the best birthday gift ever I'm gonna go and win a golden ticket as it were to the Paralympic Games that of course in turn has been has been postponed until next year. Uh, so I think I believe the revised dates are April twenty twenty one, where again this tournament will run, and it's it's a winner take all situation, you know. So I hope that I'm fighting fit by then and and that I can still get selected. But the way I'm looking at this situation now is right. I know that I definitely. At this moment in time, I'm not going to the next Paralympic Games in Tokyo. However, what I can do is I've now got a 12-month gift, you know, where I can actually go and work another year harder to be ready for this World Qualification Tournament. And I'm going to make sure that come this World Qualification Tournament, whether I win or lose, I was in the best position to play that. And I see that as a gift, you know, the fact that I've actually been given this extra 12-month window to go and try and get stronger and better and, and just, you know, all around improve my game. So it was a bit... Obviously, in the beginning, it was it was it was you know a bit bit of a sucker punch because I was like, oh, I was gonna, of course, I was gonna go and win it, and I was gonna do it on my birthday and things like that, and then that was that was obviously swept away from under me because you know the whole world changed pretty much overnight. Uh, whereas now I see it as right, this is this is such a massive opportunity and such a gift that actually you got another twelve months, you know, by the time that it all happened, you got another twelve months to go and go and prepare, go get ready. And make sure that when you turn up on the day, you got everything in the tank. So it's a um, bit of a mixed bag, but for me, I'm seeing it as such a positive at the moment. I think it's a massive result. I think you're a young guy. You've got another year to train and get experience, and you know it's a gift. So I, I agree with you. But you're not just a ten table tennis player, are you? You've all said you're married to Siobhan, so you've not been married for so long. I'm guessing. No, it's about eighteen months now. It was uh, yeah. the twenty third of December, uh, twenty nineteen, uh, twenty eighteen. Sorry, so it's uh, it's been it's been not long at all. Um, that one always trips me up because I get the date wrong, and then I get moaned at, and then Siobhan gets the date wrong, and it's because it's so close to the change of the new year. We always mix it up. So yeah, it's been about eighteen months now. Yeah, be unforgiving the marriage thing. <laughs> so, well, congratulations on that. Thank You're on you. the start of your journey there. You're a Man U fan, so Man United fan as well. So that's um, that's a good thing, I think, because obviously they're the best soccer team in the UK by a long way now. <laughs> no, I agree. It's definitely a good thing. It was something that again I was influenced from my brothers. Um, one of my older brothers. Thomas or Tam as we call him, he um he, he watches a lot of football and he was always set on Man United and um it was something that sort of trickled its way down to me, you know, and um I've lo- I'm I'm so fortunate to actually have a signed Beckham shirt. Um, you know, and for me that's that's just amazing. So yeah, so I've always been a Man U fan and a Rangers fan, but some people tell me that's me just paying for my sins. So uh <laughs> it goes from there. 
got one last photo for you. So I just want to show this last photo and then we're going to talk about this seriously. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> yeah. So Martin, what does this photo mean to you? Uh, for me, this for me this photo shows so many messages. You know, it, it shows that again anything is possible. It shows that you know you can look good in a purple suit, and <laughs> you can you know you know what for me Will Will is such a such a massive inspiration. You know, he's he's done incredible things in terms of a table tennis career, but you know for him to get the opportunity to go on strictly. Um, you know, we we speak about it a lot. Um, we're good friends and and obviously teammates. But you know, he's got nothing but good th good things to say about that whole experience. And it's something that I absolutely begged Siobhan leading up to the wedding. Because one thing, the one thing I don't have confidence in is my dancing. And I begged Siobhan. I was like, please, can we go and can we do some form of like dance lesson? You know, um, just because I'm just not like I'll happily stand up and do my speech and things like that. But I don't want to dance. Because um, obviously, at that point in the as 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 we now refer to it, at that point in the party, um, you know you've you've not got as much Dutch courage as later on. So I was so nervous about the dance. I was like, can we please go do lessons? And and I got shut down. Um, so I of course inevitably stood on the dress numerous times and got moaned at and things like that. But um, yeah, to see well on strictly is just fantastic. And um, yeah, for me, it's just it, it. You know, it's massive leaps and bounds for for para athletes and and disabled people all over the UK to see someone like Will be so successful on a show like that. Yeah, it's amazing. Thanks, Nick. So, um, guys, there's a couple of interesting thoughts. So, an interesting question there from Zoltan for you. Tell us about the mental preparation for when you go into a tournament. What does that look like? For me, the mental preps. Um, it. it I try to keep it to a similar theme, but it's not necessarily locked down because I don't want to get into this process of, I mean, you look at some athletes like um, Rafa Nadal, who's very ritualistic and everything has to be in the right order at the right place. And that's fine. If that works for Rafa, that's fantastic. Great on him. But for me, I like to have a sort of semi-set routine, you know, so it's just all about um, on the build up to a tournament for me, I like to actually taper down training a little bit. You know, taper taper down training a little bit and and focus more on exercises that are going to make me feel good. You know, because um, you know, with the way I look at it with my sports psychologist, it's almost like going into battle. You know, so I want to go into battle knowing that I feel fantastic about myself and that I've got this aggression and energy. So that comes from doing exercises on the table that make me feel good, and I know that I've got the energy because I've tapered down my training a little bit. And then I usually create a, a playlist on my phone of you know of songs that I'm listening to at that moment. Where um, say I'm going to the U.S. Open or whatever, I'll have a playlist on my phone U.S. Open, and that'll be all I listen to while I'm there and 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 on the way out and stuff like that. Because that that'll be songs that get me sort of geared up and fired up. Um, and then when I get to the tournament, um, if I've not been there before. I like to go for a little stroll around um, and, you know, get familiar with everything, you know, not just in the hall and, and the training area and stuff like that, just the local area, you know, like if I, if I know that I need something, I can, I can, you know, I know that I've found a shop or things like that, you know, so I like to get a feel for the local area and things like that. And I just think that sort of relaxes you because you know that you're prepared and, and stuff like that. And it's good to obviously get out, especially after a long flight and stretch the legs. So I'll go for a little walk. Um, but yeah, when it comes to actual crunch time in terms of competition, um, as 
energetic and as open as I am, I tend to be quite within myself um, because that's just me drawing on my emotions and trying to get as, as sort of mentally focused and prepared as possible. So that's pretty much when the headphones go on and, you know, building up to the match, I probably won't speak to people as much. Um, and, you know, that's just obviously because that's, that's when nerves start to kick in a little bit because every athlete gets nervous. You know, um, if they tell you they're not, I think they're lying to you because every athlete gets nervous for sure. It's just all about how you can channel that into the right way. You know, so as I said, someone like me, it's just headphones on, music that I know makes me feel good. And that pretty much does it for me. You know, I'll have my bag packed the night before with exactly everything that I need and more. Um, but whereas obviously other athletes are different, they go for a complete opposite approach. They could be, um, you know, very consolidated people, but then when it comes to crunch time, they're actually very open and bubbly and, and alive and full of energy, or they could go down the Rafa route, you know, where everything's meticulously and methodically planned out and placed to the right area. Um, so for me, it's all about just that mental preparation and key focus that, that you know, that I'm there to do a job. Yeah, I get it. Listen, Martha, I think your life's going to be a really positive and exciting one. I'm sure we'll see you do really well in the Table Tennis World Rankings. And I sincerely hope that you go on and continue to represent the country as amazingly as you have done so far. I hope you and Siobhan have an amazing, happy life together. But most of all, I, I hope that, you know, even at such a young age, you're leaving a lot of people with your positive mental attitude, your success and and helping other people so young, which is really inspiring for all of us. So thank you for sharing the last hour with Avanti. Uh, I really want to challenge you though, to come to our office because we have table tennis in the basement. And, you know, honestly, I think a few of the people on the call would probably think they could take you. Absolutely. As soon as I'm allowed back outside, I'll be straight down. That sounds, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity and I'd love to do that. Thank you. Great to meet you, Martin. Thanks again. And thank you for participating in the At Home With series. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've loved it. Take care, everyone. So there you have it. There's episode one of Peripod. I would love your feedback. Is there anything that you want me to speak about? Is there any issues with regards to the sound quality? Is there things that you think I can improve on? Or just general feedback in terms of what you thought of the podcast? I'd really appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed it and tune in for the next Peripod episode.